But if you will, turn to Genesis. Actually, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 16. As we're making our way through this epic tale, uh, this uh, origin story. And we said from the beginning that, that in this place, this season in our church's history where so, much, uh, so many new things are happening, a new campus, new buildings, new ministry opportunity, uh, post-COVID as the world is opening back up and we're able to re-engage and multiply our efforts to reach the neighborhoods, the nations, and the next generation, that it felt appropriate to go back to the beginning of our story, all the way back to the beginning. That's the, what the word Genesis means, the beginning. And so we have uh, found ourselves in this ancient story, not just something that happened, but a story that happens, a story that we are all living into even right now. And, and so we're going to continue on in this uh, account of God's interactions with his people and uh, go on and find your way to Genesis chapter 16. If you need a Bible, we've got some people that will walk around and pass out Bibles. Just slip up a hand and they'll make sure they get a Bible to you so you can follow along. But we'll be in Genesis 16 here. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. So may the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. But the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant. And shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadish and Berid. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So reading or listening to this story, it probably should raise a number of questions for you. There may be some parts of it that actually kind of uh, uh, hit you in a way that is, is bothersome, troublesome. Some things in there that just don't quite sit right. But it's an important story. 
and it, it is not simply just sort of an interruption, though it does serve as a little bit of a detour in this account of Abram. Now, now let's set up where we find ourselves. If you remember in chapter 12, God shows up in the midst of the brokenness of humanity and the wickedness of mankind who have now been scattered over the face of the earth. That Their rebellion against God has caused them to turn their back on God and to turn against one another. And we've seen the impact of sin all the way from Genesis chapter 3 that into a good and perfect world, a world full of God's potential, that mankind's rebellion has resulted in sin and death, fear, hatred, struggle, isolation, shame and guilt, pain and suffering. And we've watched how that effect of sin made its way, not just affecting the individual, but affecting the, that relationship between husband and wife and in, infecting the family unit and from the family now polluting all of society and all of culture. And yet in that broken, struggling, suffering world, God has a plan of redemption. And he calls forth a man and his wife, Abram, and he says that through you, I'm going to bring blessing or redemption to the entire world. Through your offspring, I will bless the nations. And we watch as Abram and Sarai obey. They listen to the voice of God. They leave behind everything that they know. They leave their father's livelihood. They leave their father's protection and their father's provision. Most importantly, they leave their father's gods and they set out after a new God who we know to be the true God, the creator God, the king who made everything good and true, loving and faithful. And Abram and Sarai, they begin this journey of discovery with God, not knowing where he's going to lead them, but as long as they continue to listen to his voice, as long as they continue to follow, as long as they continue to obey, God will fulfill his purposes and his promises through them. Then last week, we, we looked at how God confirmed this covenant with Abram and Sarai and, and this cutting of the covenant, this ancient symbolic picture of two people groups becoming one. And that in that act of covenant in Genesis chapter 15, and if you weren't here last week, you can go back and read that. We see this amazing declaration of God. The same declaration that every time we go to a wedding, we, we live into, we reenact the same story. Where two become one. Not just two individuals, but two family units. And this declaration that everything I have is now yours. And everything that you have is now mine. We are one. The amazing thing about God's covenant is that he actually promises to fulfill both sides of the commitment. In other words, in making a covenant in this corridor of blood that we see in Genesis chapter 15 is also this statement or this consequence that if I or if you break this covenant, then may it be done to us as it is done to these sacrifices. May it be our blood that is shed. And we see that when God makes a covenant with man, not only is he making this amazing statement that everything that you have is now mine, which isn't much to begin with from Abram's perspective, but everything I have, the God of the universe is saying, everything I have is now yours. And even more significantly, if either one of us, Abram and your offspring, if either one of us breaks this covenant, God is saying, may it be my blood 
that is shed. This early picture or foreshadow of what God would ultimately fulfill in Jesus. And so Abram gets a glimpse of his future that is going to be through his son that God is going to bring blessing to the world. That Abram is going to have a son. And with that promise, that hope, this amazing interaction of the God of the universe calling Abram and his family to be his people, to fulfill his promises, in that context we get Genesis chapter 16. They get a glimpse of God's plan. But they don't see how it could be fulfilled. Abram, in chapter 15, is told he's going to have a son. Sarai knows that she's barren. That son can't come through her. She sees no solution to this problem. God's promise, you're going to have a son. And through that son, the nations are going to be blessed. I can't give that to you. So what are we going to do? Let's figure this out on our own. You know, it's interesting, as a pastor, most often, uh, or one of the most regular things that I'm asked to pray with people through and about is trying to discern God's future for them. And we ask it in this way, God, what is God's will for my life? What is God wanting me to do? Where is God wanting me to go? I feel unfulfilled right now. So, so what is the path to fulfillment? I feel lost right now. So what is the path to discovery? And so often as we pray, what is actually uh, becomes apparent is we don't just want the next step. We want the next 10 steps. We want the five-year, the 10-year plan. God, I would be willing to take this risk. I would be willing to step out on faith if you would only just tell me how it's going to go down the road. I'm willing to make this change. I'm willing to make this move. I'm willing to start into this new endeavor. I'm willing to go and put myself out there in a way that's scary. But God, just tell me, how does this actually all play out? I don't want just the next thing to do. I want to know the next ten things to do. Does anyone identify with that at all? Amen? Yeah, okay, there we go. I know it's nine o'clock, but you got an extra hour of sleep last night. Praise the Lord. Unless you have kids, that's true. Yeah, daylight savings is irrelevant under the age of 12. Where was I? We're having a great conversation here, you and I. So we want the full plan. Abram is just like us and his wife. Every time they get a glimpse of what God might do and they can't see the rest, they begin to try to figure it out for themselves. And and so Sarai, not seeing how possibly Abram could have a child with her because she's barren, decides, okay, well, here's a way we can do this. And she has this servant, Hagar. Now, we're told some very specific information about Hagar. She's not just a random woman that is serving in Abram and Sarai's family. She's actually an Egyptian. If you remember, there's actually an earlier detour that Abram and Sarai took. Right after chapter 12, right after God says that I'm going to lead you into a land that I'll show you. I'm going to bless you so that you can become a blessing. The first thing they hit on their journey of obedience is famine, is struggle. Maybe you've been there. All right, God, I'm going to trust you. 
I'm going to take that first step of faith. I'm going to go out and on, on this risk. I'm going to, as simple as I'm going to go talk to my neighbor or, I'm going to ta- or as big as I'm going to take this new job or move to this other country. I mean, as, whatever that thing might be, I'm going to obey. I'm going to leave this life behind that I was living before. I'm going to turn to you, God. Surely, from here on out, it should be easy and fun and good. But often we find that we're hit with struggle, temptation, lack, confusion. And the same thing happens to Abram. He hits that famine in Genesis, at, in the, at the end of Genesis 12. And so what does he do? He takes matter into, matters into his own hand. God takes a back seat. And they go to Egypt, just like everybody else, where it feels safe and secure. There's a rabbi, an ancient rabbi that says, uh, he's got a great phrase, that... Um, Throughout the Bible, the problem isn't taking God's people out of Egypt. It's getting Egypt out of God's people. In other words, that God delivers his people consistently from places of bondage and slavery and sets them into places of freedom and promise. And yet the consistent struggle is for his people to want to go back to those places of bondage. I don't think that we're that far removed. That so often in our life, as we begin this relationship with Jesus, as our hearts turn in faith to him and we begin this new uh, journey of obedience with him, that when we hit struggles, when we hit confusion, when things get hard, how easy it is for us to go on and slip back into those old patterns, those old ways of thinking, those old habits and hang-ups, those old addictions and numbing mechanisms, whatever it was that we used before to make life work or to make ourselves feel better. And instead of continuing to trust God, we just want to go back to where it felt safe before. That's exactly what Abram did. And we see the consequences of that Egyptian detour now showing themselves back up. And so Hagar... One of the remnants of that Egyptian detour now in this next place of confusion and struggle. Sarai looks at her and goes, hey, there it is. There's a solution right here. We can solve this. We don't need God. We can, answer, we can do this for him. And so she says to Abram, hey, take my servant. Make her your wife. And maybe God will give you children through her. And it works. Abram, it says, listens to the voice of Sarai. It's actually the exact same phrase as Genesis chapter 3 where it says that uh, Adam listened to the voice of Eve and took the fruit and ate it for himself. It's interesting, later God will praise Abram for listening to the voice of God. It's the same phrase, but here we see that Abram listening to the voice of his wife. Now, just to be careful, this isn't a mandate to not listen to your wife. Most of the time, listening to Sadie is usually a pretty good idea for me. But not when she's operating out of a place of insecurity or fear or pain. And that the primary voice that I need to be listening to in my life is not my wife, as amazing and brilliant as she is. It's to God. Vice versa applies wives to your husbands. It's to God. And that when we operate out of places of insecurity or pain or fear, we, we lead, we, fear always inevitably leads to sin. Abram 
here doesn't listen to God, listens to his wife. She's operating out of a place of, of fear and control. So he does what she says. It works. Hagar gets pregnant. And as soon as Hagar gets pregnant, the, the problem arises in that she now looks, with, it says, with contempt on her mistress. In other words, she considers herself better than Sarai. What you couldn't do in 80 years, I just did in eight months. Whatever, I don't know the time on that. But she despises her mistress. Now, Sarai, who thought this was a great idea at first, all of a sudden is not liking it so much. And we don't know if it's jealousy, if it's bitterness, if it's pain, whatever it is. It says that she begins to treat Hagar, uh, that, that she, she um, begins to mistreat Hagar. So much so that Hagar leaves. She flees into the wilderness. But God meets her there. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Now I want to pause right here because it's stories like these that often uh, can create some confusion around God's heart towards women, towards the oppressed, towards the vulnerable. And there's this weird cultural thing that's happening where, um, and, and I have my, my, you know, hypotheses on why this is the case, but um, I shared this a few months ago, that never, that never before pastoring have I had more questions around this idea of, is God mis misogynistic? Like, does God hate women, in other words? And it's easy to look at this chapter, and I mean, as you're reading this, there's some things that should probably bother you. That Hagar is viewed not as a person, but as a possession. That, that Sarai could think that she would take and give and, and use this woman to fulfill her purposes. But don't make the mistake that the way that God's people treat people is how God treats people. Because there's a big difference in how Abram and Sarai treat Hagar and how God treats Hagar. Because what does God do? He shows up in her brokenness, in her fear, in her pain, in her confusion when she's lost and wandering in the wilderness. He sees her as a person. He hears her as his daughter, and he blesses her. That's what God does. I mean, consistently throughout the Bible, pay attention to this. Consistently throughout the Bible, yes, God uses broken people who operate in broken ways, and we all in our own ways uh, don't see others as people. We abuse and we use and we, we don't trust and we take advantage of and we manipulate. And yet God in his grace continues to choose us and to use us. And our behaviors and our actions don't change who he is. What he's wanting to do is his behaviors and his actions to change us. And so when God shows up, he reveals who he is. The amazing thing is that consistently throughout the Bible, all the way through the Old Testament... When God enacts laws and precepts, rules and guidelines, they are over and over again to care for, to protect and to provide for the vulnerable, the oppressed, the broken, and the impoverished. And then I would argue the Bible is actually the most empowering book in history towards women and towards the oppressed. Because God shows up, he does a different thing. And notice, he meets her there. He finds her. He pursues her. 
And then he blesses her. And the other amazing thing, this chapter also has been used, uh, and it, it is... It reveals the roots of a lot of the tensions and conflicts, the violence of world history. There are three major religions that 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 uh, I just lost my word that include the majority of this globe, this world's population: Judaism, Christianity, and uh, Islam. That all trace their roots back to Abraham. And in this chapter, we see this divide between, at the time, Judaism and Islam. And that Islam traces their roots back to the son Ishmael, and Judaism traces its roots back to the son Isaac. And we see here even that, that God says, as a prophetic word, that there will be strife, there will be tension between these brothers. And so this chapter often gets used as that, that Ishmael is the son of the curse. Isaac, the son of blessing. Ishmael, the son of slavery. Isaac, the son of freedom. Ishmael, the son of God's salvation. Isaac, the son of God's judgment. But an important question to ask, is Ishmael cursed in this chapter? Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. First off to point that that is actually the first birth announcement in the Bible. The rest of the birth announcements from this point forward, it will be Isaac in chapter 17. In Judges 13, it will be Samson. In 1 Kings 13, it will be the King Josiah, the reformer. In 2 Kings 4, it's Elisha to the Shunammite son. In Isaiah 9, 6, it is that to us the son is born. In Matthew 1, 21, it is Jesus. And in Luke 1, it is John the Baptist. From this point forward, every birth announcement is an announcement of God doing something absolutely incredible in this world, miraculous in this world. And the first of those birth announcements is actually here about Ishmael. Even his name, that you shall call his name Ishmael, which means that God, that you are a God who's, that God hears because the Lord has listened to your affliction. That you'll be multiplied that your children will be a multitude. And even this phrase, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, is an interesting phrase, and not necessarily if I spoke that over my children would be a blessing. And I've used similar words about my children probably. But let's use the Bible to interpret the Bible. That word wild donkey, this is not the only place that it shows up. The other reference to it is in Job, one of the other reference to it is in Job 39. And in Job 39, it's God asking Job these amazing questions, these unanswerable questions. Are you there when the mountain goats give birth? Are you the one who set the wild donkey free? The wild donkey who runs on the hills, who doesn't put up with the tumult and the chaos of the city. The amazing thing that God is saying to this slave woman, Hagar, is that you will have a son. His name will be that God hears, and your son will be born free. That sounds like a blessing to me. Now, why does this matter? Because God's heart is for all people and all nations. And when one day God will fulfill his promise to Abram, the covenant promise that there will become one who will deliver his people, who will save his people from their sins, that when Jesus Christ shows up in this world, 
that the gospel message is to be proclaimed to all people, everywhere. Sons of Ishmael and sons of Abraham. And that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so often in the world that we live in, we view specifically our Muslim neighbors or the, the conflicts across the globe as being our enemies. And as you've probably, if you may have heard in the, the history of grace, the question that we had to wrestle with and come to is are Muslims the enemy or are they the prize? Did Jesus die for them as much as he died for us? That's why as a church family, we have unapologetically said that our missional focus in the nations around the world is to reach the Muslim world with the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. That's why we go to Israel and Palestine. That's why we're involved in West Africa. In Jordan, in Afghanistan. As we think that God has a blessing for all people through his son, Jesus Christ. So that's 16, and it's a detour. But the amazing thing is that even in spite of Sarai's demand to take control and answer the question she has on her own terms, that seems to derail God's plan. The amazing thing is that God is able to take her failures and actually redeem them to achieve his purposes. Flip over to Isaiah 60. about halfway through your Bible, right past the Psalms. Some of this will sound familiar. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you. And his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar. And your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Aphah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kadar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Neboth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who is it that will bring acceptable offerings? And who is it that will beautify the house of God? Who are these nations and kings that upon whom the glory of the Lord will shine? Well, Genesis 25 tells us Kadar and Neboth aren't just two random names. They're actually the first two sons born to Ishmael. That even when God makes a promise that his glory will shine on all nations, that what he says is that one day, these sons of mine, 
these children of mine will come back to me and know me as their Lord, their God. And we know that that light that shone, that light of the world, that, 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 that glory to the nations was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Lord. God redeeming his original story, his original tent from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 on, that God would dwell with his people and his people would dwell with God. And that all people would know the glory of God as his sons and daughters. I didn't actually plan on getting into all that this morning. I was really going to try to get all the way through Genesis chapter uh, 18 this morning, but that's not going to happen. Let me end with this. This is what I want us to walk away with. And let me pause and say my usual disclaimer. Way more important than anything that I could have to say from up here is what God wants to say to you through his word. And so I strongly encourage you, if you have not done so, to dig into this, these scriptures on your own this week. There's some deep, powerful truths. And keep asking the question, God, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to know? Where do I find myself in this story? How are you living out this story today? And so I'll give you this. In Genesis, the next chapter, there's this detour in chapter 16. God will show back up to Abram. And he's going to clarify that it's actually going to be through Sarai that, that he's going to fulfill his covenant promise. It's going to be through her son. And in doing so, as when God shows up, he gives them a new identity. And that's when he changes their name Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. And he gives them a mark that will, that will forever set them apart as his people. And that mark is circumcision. And what he says to Abram is that from now, at this point forward, or Abraham now... I want you to take every one of your sons and I want you to circumcise them when they're eight days old. I want you to set them apart as my people. Now, what I didn't realize, I've always heard that and I've even heard it, you know, joked around. It's like that God shows up to Abram and and says, I'm going to now call you Abraham. I'm going to give you a piece of my name, Yahweh. You're going to be defined by me. My identity is going to be in you. And I want to cut you. I'm gonna, I want to, to, to change you, transform you. I want to give you a visible sign of this covenant. Not just a rainbow in the sky like I gave to Noah out there, but something on you in that most intimate, vulnerable place. That place of procreation and reproduction, of blessing that, and fruitfulness. And that place, I'm going to forever mark you so that you will always remember me. And Abram hearing this amazing promise of what God wants to do and what God wants to give them. And then all of a sudden, here's how God wants to do it and goes, well, wait, sorry, say what? You want to cut me where? But what I didn't realize is that Abram would have known exactly what God was talking about. Circumcision wouldn't have been something new to him. In fact, the oldest records that we have about circumcision are from ancient Egypt. But in Egypt... They use circumcision to set apart kings and priests. So in other words, when God was saying to Abram or Abraham, I'm going to give you a mark. And I want that mark to be on every one of your sons. Every family to be marked as kings and as priests. 
He's actually echoing what he'll say later in Exodus when he says, I'm going to create out of you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Why is that significant? I mean, it's just again repeating Genesis 2. 2. All God's people in God's eyes are royalty. And all God's people carry that priestly role. And what does a priest do? A priest represents God to man and represents man to God. Here's what I want us to walk away with, and then we'll continue in worship. There's just so much good here that dig into it for yourself. Two things. What are the places in your life that you are trying to control that out of fear and insecurity that you're trying to, to make a way for yourself apart from God? What voices are you listening to? And the second is this. If it is true that in God's eyes all of his people are kings and priests, royalty, and representatives of him before humanity, what would it look like if you actually stood up out of this building and walked out of here, or a Monday morning as you headed into work, you actually believed that you walked out into the world as a priest of God, that you represent God before mankind, that you intercede for people on their behalf before God, that you represent God to the people that you encounter. What would it look like for you to live as kings and as priests, to live as royalty with a divine calling on your life, with an identity given to you by God, not by this world, with access to the creator of the universe, how would it change your life if you actually believed that you are priests of God, to minister to God and man, used by God, access to God, the presence and the power of God poured out on you and through you? I am not your priest. Now, I have a role as a pastor of this church to spiritually direct, to open God's words, and hopefully to keep pointing us to Jesus. But the reality is that you don't need me to have access to God. You don't need me to intercede for you. The prayers of the person next to you are just as powerful, if not more powerful, than my prayers for you. Me opening God's word, though God has given me the role of shepherding, stewarding this local flock... It is just as powerful. God speaks just as loudly when you and two others gather together and open his word and ask God, hey, God, what are you saying? What would it look like to live like that? And to be honest, as a pastor, this is what weighs on me the heaviest. Is that you, every one of you, would actually stand up into the authority and the responsibility that you have given to you by God in Jesus Christ. We have one mediator in God in heaven between us and God, and that's Jesus Christ, our Lord. We can enter the throne room of grace with confidence. You can walk out of your house on Monday morning with the confidence that you go with God, in God, and by God. You represent him. You carry his word forward in your body. And it's no longer the external mark of circumcision. It is the internal mark 
of the circumcised heart, a transformed heart that changes you, that defines you. That's the sign that you carry. Every one of you. What would it look like if you believed that? That you are a priest and a king by Jesus Christ from the creator God of this universe. As we worship, I'm going to invite you to take communion. That reminder of the body and the blood of Jesus. The presence of Christ in us. The forgiveness of Christ for us. I'm going to invite you to come and to kneel. And if there's things that you just need to surrender back to God. Places of fear or insecurity. Places of control or sin. Places that you're wandering away from him. That he may be calling back to you. Or maybe to surrender to God and say, okay, I'm your man. I'm your woman. You see me. You know me. You hear me. You walk with me. And as we kneel in this, this posture, uh, this physical act of surrender and submission to God, but then to stand up. And as you stand up, to even just receive in Christ by his Holy Spirit. the power and the presence of Christ for you and in you to go from here out into the world as a representative of the God who is calling all nations back to himself, beginning with your neighbor. So I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to invite you to come kneel and surrender. May you receive the commission of the God Most High. Priests and kings, sons and daughters. And so, Lord, I ask, even right now, will you call to the mind of each one of us any place of fear or insecurity where we're listening to voices that are not yours, we're trying to control our lives apart from you. God, even right now, may we turn our hearts back to you. May we step into that calling, that commission. God, it doesn't make sense. It's way bigger than any of us, and none of us deserve it. We are Abraham and Sarah over and over again. We have our own detours, our own struggles, and yet you still show up. You still choose us, appoint us to go and to bear fruit, fruit that will last. So, Lord, I pray even this morning in this little church here in Monroe, Georgia, will you raise up a generation of spiritual fathers and mothers confident in their identity and their calling in you that you are cleansing them, forgiving them, washing and purifying them, calling them into your presence. Will you teach us to recognize and respond to your voice in our life by your Holy Spirit? Will you cut off anything in us that is separating us from you? And so, Lord, may we respond in faith. May we respond in surrender to you, 
Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. And may all nations know you. And may your light shine and your glory fall. Amen.